Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. About uh, 10 or 11 years ago, I was sitting in a meeting in Billings, Montana. It was about 8 o'clock in the morning. At that point, I still considered myself a free man, and by that I mean I was a guy who did not own or carry a cell phone. I lived my life without being interrupted 37 times a day. My district superintendent at the time uh, was in that meeting, and he excused himself from the meeting, went out into the hall because his cell phone was ringing, and I was kind of self-righteously snickering under my breath about how I don't have to put up with such things. He was gone uh, less than a minute and came back in and handed me his cell phone and said, it's Laura. (laughs) So I took his phone, and I went out in the hall, and I said, honey, I'm in a meeting. What's up? And she said... Our house is on fire. And I I didn't understand her uh, very clearly, so I said, whoa, 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 was or is? And she said, at what I remember as a rather elevated volume, is. And so at that point, I asked the question that is the only question that you ask when you find out that your house is on fire. Are you and the kids safe? right? Did you get out of the house? Are you and the kids safe? There's uh, really only one question to ask in a situation like that, and she said yes, and so the rest of it is really just details. No, the house uh, didn't burn to the ground. We had some repairs to make, but I won't bore you with all of uh, the details there. I will tell you that uh, within the next 24 hours, I owned a cell phone, and Laura made sure of that. Yeah. Yeah. See, that was, a, that was a crucial moment in our lives, uh, the, the fire, not the phone, the fire. And in that crucial moment, there really was only one question to ask. Is everybody safe? Did you get yourself and the kids out of the house? There's only one question to ask when your house is on fire because there's only one thing to do when your house is on fire, and that's to get everybody out. You don't ask the question, did you get my grandpa's rifle? Did you get my guitar? Did you get your china? Did you get the wedding pictures? Because those things are precisely the wrong thing to do when your house is on fire. So it's the wrong question to ask when your house is on fire. Just one thing to do, one thing to ask. Did you get everybody out of there to safety? You know, in a lot of life's crucial moments, there's only one thing to do. Now, there may be a number of things that flood into your mind at that point. You may become confused. You may make a bad decision. But in a lot of crucial moments, there's really only one thing to do. And it's wisdom that recognizes those moments for what they are, understands just what needs to be done, and then acts decisively. And that's exactly what happened in the story that we're going to read today, a story from the life of Jesus. As Christine mentioned, next week is Holy Week. It uh, culminates with Easter. That means that on Easter Sunday here, it's going to be a big, fun, joyful celebration. So I hope that you've uh, already invited friends and family to come with you. If you haven't, do that before the end of the day, before next week's plans get all set in concrete for them. But since January, we've been on a march toward Easter, and we've been working our way through Luke's version of the Jesus story And it faithfully is going to get us to Easter next week, and it means that today it brings us to an episode from the life of Jesus that has become known as the triumphal entry. Three of the four writers of the the Gospels, the the life stories of Jesus, uh, made a habit throughout their telling of Jesus' story. They They made a habit of 
of recording Jesus as telling people to keep a secret. Many people over the course of Jesus' ministry were able to put two and two together and to figure out that he really was sent by God as Israel's Messiah or Grand Fixer, as I like to call him. And every time that, that someone would say, hey, I get it, Jesus, you're the me-, Jesus would cut him off and say, shh, don't tell anybody because it isn't time yet until we get to the story of the triumphal entry. And on that day, Jesus said nothing of the kind. There was no shushing, no secrets. Quite the opposite, when people started pointing out who he was and getting very vocal and demonstrative about it, Jesus just kind of poured fuel on the fire and gave them reason all the more to praise him. Why the change? That's what we're going to learn about today very briefly, but let's take a look at the story and see if we can figure it out together. Stand with me, if you would, please, in honor of the reading of God's word. As always, Lord, I'm asking you to to turn on the lights for us. Uh, Our our eyes can see, but we need for our hearts to be able to see the truth of this message and you in it. So come, Holy Spirit, and lead us into the truth, I pray. Amen. After saying these things, reading from uh, Luke Oh, I don't remember now. Luke 19, 28 through 40. Yeah. After saying these things, Jesus headed straight up to Jerusalem. When he got near Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olives, he sent off two of the disciples with instructions. Go to the village across from you. As soon as you enter, you'll find a colt tethered, one that's never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says anything... Uh, or asks, what are you doing? Say, his master needs him. The two left and found it just as he said. As they were untying the colt, its owners said, what are you doing untying the colt? They said, his master needs him. They brought the colt to Jesus. Then, throwing their coats on its back, they helped Jesus get on. And as he rode, the people gave him a grand welcome, throwing their coats on the street. Right at the crest, where Mount Olives begins its descent, the whole crowd of disciples burst into enthusiastic praise over all the mighty works they had witnessed. Blessed is he who comes, the king in God's name. All's well in heaven, glory in the high places. Some Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, get your disciples under control. But he said, if they kept quiet, stones would do it for them shouting praises. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All of Jesus' life thus far, there had been a rule. Don't tell. His mom knew exactly who he was, so when he was about 30, they were put in a social situation where it really would help if Jesus could pull off a miracle and do something to help this young couple who were about to be embarrassed at their own wedding reception by running out of wine. And so she said, Jesus, do something about it. And he said, Mom, it's not time. And if I work the miracle, then it's going to kind of, you know, take the the veil off and people are going to understand just exactly who I am. And that's not how the plan's supposed to work. It's still supposed to be a secret. But she was his mom. And that means that she's the boss of him forever, right? And uh, so she forced him, and Jesus went ahead and did what his mom said, and I don't know how that affected God's plan for the rest of the world. But that's what, uh, that's what Jesus did when his mom was standing in front of him telling him, you've got to do this. Jesus was still trying to keep the secret. Mom said, yeah, enough of that. 
And all along the way, over the next two to three years of his public ministry, Jesus would heal people, he would help people, a time or two he even resurrected people from the dead. And most of the time, the people who got good things from Jesus would just take them and then go on their way. Occasionally, some would say, thank you, and then go on their way. And on rare occasions, some of them would look at him and say, oh, oh, I get it. I get it. I I realize that that you're either God or you're God's specially sent Messiah. And Jesus would say to him, shh, don't, don't tell anybody because it isn't time yet. On the day of the triumphal entry, however, Jesus seemed to change his mind. He seemed to think that that day was the day. It was, it was time. It was dawning on a lot of people that day just exactly who he is. And it was dawning on them in such a way that it generated this, this upwelling of, of joy and this, this outburst of enthusiastic praise from them. It wasn't like, a, oh, hey, that's neat. Jesus is God. It was this oh my goodness, this changes everything kind of aha moment that caused something deep in the hearts, deep in the chests of the people there that they couldn't quite control in it. It started making its way out through their mouths and through their hands, and they started doing crazy things. You read Matthew's version of it. They started tearing limbs off the trees and throwing them out on the, on the road in front of him. And, and Luke says that they started pulling their outer clothes, their, their cloaks and their coats off, and throwing them on the ground in front of Jesus, throwing him on the ground in front of his mount so that it didn't even get its hooves dirty. How's that for a show of respect and awe? Whole crowd was getting into it, and, and before long, they started singing, and, and they started chanting praises, and you know why? Because it was a crucial moment, and at that crucial moment, there was, there was only one thing to do. Now enter the Pharisees. Jesus, get your disciples under control. People have been telling the people of God for a long time that they should be more dignified than they are. You should just always know that every time that happens in the pages of Scripture, they were wrong. The call, generally speaking, is not for the people of God who are worshiping to be more dignified, but to be more authentic. And more authentic in in expressing the things that wells up in their hearts. But here are the Pharisees on the scene. Jesus, get your disciples under control. And that's when Jesus famously said, tell them to knock it off. No way. Because guys, it wouldn't do any good if I did. Because today's the day for praise. And if the people shut up, the rocks themselves are going to grow mouths and hands, and begin to do what the entire created order was designed to do from antiquity past, to point out the goodness of God in this world. So Jesus said, I I, I can't stop it. I might be able to stop the people, but the praise would continue. It's praise day. And on praise day, there's just one thing to do. You know what churches are supposed to do on Palm Sunday? They're supposed to praise Jesus. When uh, many of us who uh, grew up in the church were little bitty kids, we looked forward to Palm Sunday. Because every year there was a package that came from the florist shop. Florists love Palm Sunday. It's one of the, next to Mother's Day, it's the biggest day of the year. Or was. 
And every little kid who came into church would get this little piece of a palm tree, a little palm frond, and sometimes you'd come in and they were taped to the ends of the pews, and there was some kind of a parade during children's ministry and people waving palms, and and it's the janitor's least favorite day of the year, right? Unless there's some other holiday that involves glitter. Glitter ruins every, every janitor's life, right? But Palm Sunday, they're going to wave those palm branches in the air. And if you're not from, from high church tradition, I'm not either, but I had to study these things when I was in seminary. The proper thing to do on Palm Sunday is to collect all the palm branches when everybody leaves. That's right. Take them away from little kids who loved them. And then you save them and dry them. And um, in the spring of the next year, you then light them on fire and burn them to a very fine uh, powdery ash, and that's what is applied on the foreheads of people on, on Ash Wednesday. Yeah. I have this friend who's a really impressive pastor. He's the guy, you know, he's, he's, he's dignified. <laughs> he's the guy that I always kind of wished that I was. And uh, he was pastoring this really big church in Kansas City um, in another tradition. And so uh, 1,600 families in that church, there were a lot of palms left over, right? And uh, there was a guy, an associate pastor in his church, who was one of those guys who never was quite as well organized as he ought to be. And he said, I'll take care of the palms, Jeff. And so he collected them all, and he put them in a big trash bag and put them in his garage. And and there they were supposed to dry out over the course of the winter. And the next spring, spring comes a little earlier in that part of the country. Um, early in the spring, he sent his kids out and said, you need to go weed along the back fence. And so the kids went out to the back fence, and they pulled up all the weeds. And when they went into the garage, there was a, already a bag of weeds. So they just stuffed all those in there. So um, when it was time for, for dad to prepare the ashes, he emptied everything out and burned it all down, and, and they uh, took the ashes, they mixed them with just a little bit of oil, and the 1,600 families, I don't know how many thousand people that is, that showed up at, at their church for the, um, for the Ash Wednesday service, all got the sign of the cross painted on their foreheads with poison ivy. That's the best church story ever, isn't it? <laughs> One day in my life, I didn't want to be that pastor, right? Yeah. You know what churches are supposed to do on Ash Wednesday? It isn't that. <laughs> you know what they're supposed to do on Palm Sunday? Erupt in praise. It's just supposed to be this thing that happens in our hearts. We've kind of been sitting on it all of Lent for the last six weeks. Lent's this, this preparation time when we've been looking at our hearts and we've been, we've been examining the sin in our lives and we've been doing our best to, to, to be honest about that and to turn from it. And we're headed toward Easter when there's going to be this great celebration of life and then the party is supposed to actually break a little bit early. It's supposed to happen then on Palm Sunday. It's the only real thing, right thing to do. Shame on sermons on on Palm Sunday that that focus on looking down on the Pharisees' words because though they were wrong, that misses the point. And sermons that focus on on the the error of trying to make Jesus an earthly king, they're, they're technically correct, but they miss the point. The point of Palm Sunday is that there are days, and this is one of them, when the only thing to do is to praise Jesus for who he is. Hit me like a ton of bricks this week when I read this passage for the I don't know how many hundredth time. Today is one of those days when the only thing to do is to praise Jesus. 
Sometimes Sundays are about learning the scriptures. Sometimes they're about communing with God. Sometimes Sundays are about baptism or dedication of babies. Sometimes they're the day of salvation when somebody gets finally understands who Jesus is and they they welcome him into their hearts as, as Savior and Lord. Those are great days. But some days, some Sundays, there's just one thing to do and it's to praise Jesus and And so that's what we're going to do for the rest of our time together here today. We're going to pray. We're going to worship through giving. We're going to sing some more. You can stand or you can sit or you can kneel. I don't care what you do. Do some of each if you'd like. Don't don't feel pressured by by the people next to you, but don't look down on them either. Just let them do what they do as they worship him. This, uh, I'll, I'll use the language intentionally. This Sunday is supposed to be a praise party in this place for Jesus. Nobody in here is going to tell you to knock it off. Nobody in here is going to tell you that you ought to be more dignified and less enthusiastic. It's Palm Sunday. It's a, it's a crucial moment in, in, the, in the life of the church every single year. There's only one thing to do, and it's to praise Jesus as he deserves. So that's what I'm going to do, and that's what I invite you to do with me. Why don't you stand with me for a moment as we pray. Gracious God, as, uh, as we're really just now getting the service started, we invite you to come and to receive the praises of your people. Some of us, uh, we don't know what to do with our hands, so we jam them deep in our pockets. Um, that's okay. Some of us don't know what to do when some part of us starts to wiggle when there's music because we think that can't possibly be praise, but I think it is. You, you told us in, in Scripture that, that the, the, the right kind of worship is one that involves all of our hearts and all of our minds and all of our souls and all of our strength. It means our physicality. So we're bringing the muscle. We're bringing the, the big voice, the, the deep breaths, and the applause. And we're bringing all of it to you because you deserve it. Lord Jesus, on that day, people seem to be getting it, and some people seem to be getting in the way of it. We don't want to be the people who are uh, sitting with our uh, arms crossed and looking down on those who finally have come to understand who you are. Instead, we want to be the people are seeing it and, and singing it. Blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. He made everything right in heaven, and he's come to make everything right on earth. So we invite you to come and receive the praises of your people. They come from glad and sincere hearts, and we're going to offer them with everything we've got today.